you know, there was always the thing that we hear about in business school, that the difference between American companies and Asian companies is American companies are concerned about four quarters, Asian companies are concerned about four generations. And so everything is set up and everything is thought through of what my grandkids, grandkids, grandkids will, will deal with with this organization. And that builds greater bonds, that builds greater relationships. All those different things that we talk about being so important in business, we can't think of them as a four quarters game. We have to think of it as a four generations game. And what do we need to do to ensure the the health and viability of our nonprofit going that far into the future? Hey, friends, welcome back. I want to share a couple things with you before we get started with today's interview. First of all, make sure you watch my TEDx talk if you haven't yet, The Real ROI of Grant Writing. You can go to YouTube and just Google Teresa Huff TEDx and it'll pop right up. I really want you to have that context as you are talking to nonprofits or working in your nonprofit, talking to board members and volunteers to better explain and help people understand the resources we need in place and the real ROI that it takes to be successful with grant writing. This is a journey. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And so we have to build up the stamina, the muscles, and the connections that we need to really be successful with it. The other thing I am really excited to share with you is today's guest, because he and I are actually planning some pretty exciting collaborations for this year that I will be sharing more about as we go. And we're in the early stages, but we're going to have some fantastic resources. And we're putting together a Leadership Excellence Academy for nonprofits. I am talking today with Dr. Dan Young. He has quickly become a good friend of mine. He is a brilliant resource for nonprofits, as you will hear shortly. And we have decided to put our heads together and really create some sustainable helpful resources to help nonprofits understand how to build with excellence, how to shorten that time gap, and how to really make an impact on their missions, which is ultimately what it's about. So I'm excited to share more about that with you over the coming weeks and the programs that we have coming out. We're launching a pilot course this spring as just an initial group that we will put together a very limited group to teach some basics on foundational principles of getting a nonprofit off the ground. So I will be sharing more about that. But in the meantime, if that is intriguing to you, send me a message or um, reach out on my website contact form. You can reach me on LinkedIn or through my website, and I'll be happy to send you more details. But first, I would like to introduce you to today's guest. As I have said, I have thoroughly enjoyed getting to know him over the last year and his wife as well. They are just such big-hearted, kind-hearted people. And my husband and I have gotten to know them in person a couple of times, actually, which has been a lot of fun in this online space where <laughs> it's not very often I get to meet my podcast guests in person. So we've really enjoyed getting to know Dan and his family. 
And so I'm excited to bring this resource to you and to introduce you to him too, because like I said, he is a brilliant person. I just am mind blown every time I talk to him and he really inspires me to want to be on top of my game, more generous, more helpful, more serving as much as I possibly can, and to just really make a big impact on nonprofits. And so I hope you find his story and his wisdom encouraging today as well. I am going to introduce you to Dr. Dan Young. He is the most recently the founding director of the Wharton Alt Finance Institute at the Wharton School of Business. And he is also the curator of TEDx Wilmington, which happens to be in the top 1% of all the TEDx locations in the country. And it has, I don't know, millions of views, hundreds of speakers. It's a huge location, huge event, and he is so skillful at pulling it together. Dr. Dan is very much a natural educator. He has extensive experience teaching at the university level. He has a lot of experience teaching marketing and business, but he also, as he'll share, has quite a bit of background in nonprofit work, in leadership with nonprofits. He's been on a lot of boards and really understands the operations and governance of how a nonprofit should run. He's also earned a certificate in nonprofit leadership, and his real-world experience combined with his training make him an incredible resource. He has quickly become one of my favorite people, so I hope you enjoy meeting him and enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Dan, welcome to the show, my friend. It's great to have you. Before we start, tell us a random fact about yourself. Well, one of the things that I I've always liked to do, and whenever you get into those corporate icebreaker settings, this is this is my go-to. And you can tell me whether this is interesting or not interesting. I, I didn't say interesting fact, just random. Okay. Well, this is both random and interesting. Okay. Well, I find it I find it interesting. You may not. Um, I am a huge fan of British romantic comedies. No way way like you can give me like love actually Notting hill uh like i i love it like i don't know what it is maybe it's just the combination of you know the english countryside and like slapstick humor um you know i i don't know but i uh i just love it so that's that's okay. a random fact i knew there was a reason we were friends now i found it <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. All right. Well, it's always fun to talk nonprofits, and I'm excited to dig in today. Tell us a little bit about your background. And I know you bring a lot of different experience to the table, which is really cool. But then tell us specifically how you've worked with nonprofits. Sure. So I really grew up in a family that lived their life by to whom much is given, much is expected. Um, you know, everyone from my dad to my grandfather to my great grandfather um, had both their day job kind of from a nine to five. And then oftentimes would be out with church youth group um, or serving on boards or doing volunteer work. And some of my earliest memories of jobs that I had when I was in high school um, were were things like, you know, being the dishwasher. Uh, and a nonprofit, you know, um, 
uh, elder care facility, um, just just feeding soup to people at the Sunday breakfast mission. Um, so I really grew up in a family that put a lot of emphasis in the fact that a we are very blessed to be where we are, um, and b it's incumbent upon you to share those blessings with other people. Um, I was lucky enough to get my first um, uh, run or uh, on being a board when I was about 27 on the local board of the YMCA uh, in Wilmington, Delaware. And that really started, you know, what is now, you know, more than 20 years of, of, of serving on at least one board of each of those years, last 20. Um, right now, I serve as the chair of the board um, for a nonprofit uh, called Safe Haven um, that helps survivors of uh, sexual abuse, rape, and domestic violence. Um, I also am... Uh, I also serve on the board of a local uh, social club here in Wilmington called the University and Whist Club, where I'm on the board of governors there. Uh, and then I also work with a couple friends and serve on the board of the Derby Diversity Week um, that happens in Louisville, Kentucky, with it, which is an effort um, to share the history um, of African-Americans um, with the Kentucky Derby. You know, the very first um, jockey to win the Kentucky Derby was was a black man, uh, and eight of the first ten jockeys to win the Kentucky Derby were black men, uh, and oftentimes that history um, does not present itself in everyday conversation around the Derby, uh, which is much more about you know big hats and mint juleps. Um, so part of what we do with Derby Diversity Week is to is to educate folks about that. Um, so I I've had a long history with nonprofits. Um, I've at least filled out the paperwork and started three nonprofits, served on more than 15 boards, um, been board president for, for at least eight of those boards, um, So and done a lot of training. In fact, as uh, as Teresa knows, my, my dissertation research for my PhD uh, was an examination of digital nativity, uh, i.e. Uh, millennials versus everybody else, uh, an examination of digital nativity in impulse online giving to nonprofits. So yeah, I've, I've done some work with nonprofits and done some consulting as well. And so I'm very excited to talk about anything nonprofit. That's awesome. And I always crack up when you share some of these details, some of which of these were new to me. And I think it's awesome because I know all the other work you do too, and your education level and all these different pieces. And I'm just always blown away by how much you've accomplished and how much you still are able to serve and give back and still be very present with your family and everything else going on. So yeah, <laughs> well done. Well, I think, I think that as you know, when that, that passion for serving is intertwined with your everyday life, you don't really think of it as a big deal. Like when I talk to my 14 year old about playing video games and, I, and he says, Hey dad, you know, I'm not on there that much. I'm like, boy, you're on there like all day. He doesn't realize he's on there all day um, because it's inner, it's interwoven with him eating food. It's interwoven with him talking to friends. It's interwoven with him doing homework, much to my chagrin. So it does. So he doesn't really think about it. And it's the same way with with me and my family and giving. It's so intertwined in everything we do. I mean, I even, you know, work for a nonprofit in the University of Pennsylvania. So it's so intertwined in everything. I don't think about it 
um, and and just giving giving back is just kind of part of the DNA. And uh, as I said, I've been extremely blessed, and 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 it's just in my in my world, that's just something you do. Um, if you if you get if you're given two dollars, you should always give one of those dollars to somebody else because they might have nothing. And so um, it's something that I, I I take a lot of pride in, and something that I'm really proud to uh, carry on to my own children. I think that's amazing. And the way you mentioned growing up of just integrating it into your everyday life, that's really powerful of you being there side by side with your parents helping. It wasn't like each person had to go do their own thing. You all did it together as a family and they set the example. And for you to do that for your kids too, and leave that legacy, that's a big deal. Yeah. I mean, I think that for, for my kids, it started by doing something very simple. Um, We would uh, around Christmas time, uh, we would uh, open up uh, the phone book, which I always try to explain to people now is this strange <laughs> thing that got delivered to your house. Um, <laughs> now, you now we look have, up numbers in a yeah, book. <laughs> now, now, now we have more directed ways to do it, but but we would just look in the phone book, and I would just take twenty dollars out of my wallet and just say, "Hey, we're going to send it to this person." And the kids, when they were really really young, they'd say, "Okay, well, how do they know they sent it to us?" And it's like, well, they don't. Like, you know, it's just we have we have this we have abundance. And by by sending this twenty dollars in the mail to somebody, yes, it could be to someone who has nothing. But yes, it could be to a millionaire, at which point in time, the millionaire is like, wow, this million this millionaire thing's working out for me. Um, but it's not really about that. It's just it's just mm-hmm. about putting something out there in the universe. And it always comes back to us 20 fold. And the kids mm-hmm. have seen that just in terms of whatever job promotions in terms of opportunities like they they have just seen that small bits of goodness that you put into the universe always comes back to you it always does and so now as they've gotten older they've helped to um serve on boards and my daughter um is a a is well the youngest co-organizer of a TEDx event in in Wilmington, Delaware. She helps do TED. She mm-hmm. helps do TED talks and like they just sure. want they just they just want they just want to give back and it's a uh, mm-hmm. it's it's a beautiful thing. It's of all the things I get wrong as a parent, that's one thing I did okay. <laughs> yeah, and that builds their confidence and leadership skills too. It's so many different facets of their personality that that's developing character and even just practical organization skills, staying calm during stressful, crazy events, all the different aspects of that. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I would love to dig into nonprofit challenges now and also some brainstorming that we are cooking up to start to address these and kind of explain our reasoning behind it for some of the programs that we're looking at and the need that we see in the community. Mm-hmm. Well, I think nonprofit challenges, um, the more things change, the more they stay the same, or at least from a perceptual perspective. I think all nonprofits think that they should get more money. Uh, and, and I think this is this is very, very prevalent with um, young uh, nonprofits who might be just starting or in their first few years or maybe have one large donor that may or may not give. Uh, And then there's just, in general, we see the transition from generation to generation. Uh, I grew up in a generation where 
altruism was offline and local. You know, you would go to the Sunday breakfast mission, you'd feed food to people. You were kind of belly to belly with the people who you're serving. Um, for for generations like millennials and Generation Z, it's more, much more online and global. Um, so the ability to, you know, know that there was a tsunami in Haiti and to be able to just click a button and to give to those folks is wonderful. But what happens sometimes is we lose some of that civic pride in the local nonprofit organizations that desperately need our help, but just don't have the technological capabilities. Um, they are not sponsored um, or promoted by someone from social media or reality television. Uh, and by not supporting those local nonprofits, clearly that has a much more palpable impact on your community, right? So everyone, everyone that you know has given to Haiti, which feel free, that's wonderful. They've given to the Red Cross, they've given to other places, but for every dollar that doesn't go back into the local community, then your local ecosystem may get worse and worse. So the funding piece is huge, especially for younger and smaller nonprofits. Um, just the competition of time is huge. So as more people have extended their hours partially because of COVID, so now you can work hybrid, and a lot of people are used to kind of having a side hustle, now instead of working a nine to five, being able to get off of work and go to serve, many of us are working some sort of a uh, version of almost like nine to nine with about you know 60% attention in that time period. Uh, and it seems like we have less time because, because the folks that we work with always have access to what we're doing. Um, then we all, we have just the competition of just time, whether it is, you know, I remember, you know, growing up, I'm, you know, Teresa's way too young to remember this, but I remember growing up and there are four channels on the TV, right? It's like, ABC, Oh yeah. CBS, and you had to go ABC. click, click, click. You had to walk over to the TV and click the knob. That's a hundred percent. That's hundred percent right. <laughs> and and now you have hundreds of channels and all this streaming and and you can and you can look at everything on your phone and you know in in marketing we call this the three screen problem where you know it's very hard to get messages to anyone because they're looking at their phone and they're looking at their laptop and they're looking at their television set all in the same at the same time in the same field of vision. Mm -hmm. So how mm -hmm. do we as nonprofits pull away your attention? It was hard enough just doing it when you were watching your TV. Now we have to do it from two extra screens minimally. Um, and we have to not only compete with every other, potentially every other nonprofit for your dollar, but now we have to compete with every other nonprofit globally for your dollar. Yes, there is an abundance of money out there for people, but oftentimes people will tranche their giving ability to a dollar figure so what i mean by that is usually i most people don't come into the calendar year and say hey i make a hundred thousand dollars i got a ten thousand dollar raise i'm going to just go ahead and take that ten thousand dollars plus another 15 and give that to a nonprofit." You so usually usually people have a set amount in their mind that they're going to give for the year in most cases. And so now as nonprofits, we have to be much more creative 
about using what I call the four T's, not the two T's, or the three T's, the four T's, time, talent, treasure, and telephone, meaning, you know, sometimes you have someone who just makes a good call on your behalf that can open doors for you. We have to come up with more creative ways to engage people's time, talent, treasure, and telephone in a way that fits into their daily lifestyle so they're not shaking too much out of what they're doing on a daily basis uh, and and make sure that we are effectively and efficiently using those resources to help the constituents that we that we got into the business to help. You're hitting on some big challenges and big struggles, I'm sure. And I find it ironic that we're more connected than ever. And at the same time, we're more disconnected than ever because of that connectivity. Like you said, you used to go and serve at the mission locally and do certain things locally. And now we're so connected that we can do things globally and see what's happening worldwide. But yet there's a disconnect with the in-person piece and the distractions and these different, the three screen things that you mentioned, those distractions are causing a disconnect more than, way more than they used to when we were younger. We didn't have all that. You know, we'd have to pick up the phone and dial (laughs) and Mm -hmm. call our friends and that was it. And we had to be mindful of the phone bill and how many minutes were we racking up on there. So it's changed a lot and that connectivity, the opportunities are huge, but also those potential pitfalls are big. And I agree that we do have to get creative to be able to stand out And I believe part of that comes down to what we've been talking about is serving well and serving with excellence and helping nonprofits serve with excellence and not just scraping by or half-hearted, but truly finding ways to stand out by doing it well. And I think, you know, to your point, you know, technology and social media and internet, it, it makes us get closer or makes us have contact with more humans but we're more distant from humanity uh and everything and everything that makes it easy for me to text you to direct message you um it piece by piece just the human touch and the human um interaction has been lessened you know, we all those well, those of us of a certain age, uh, you know, remember mm-hmm. those those TV commercials in the 1980s um, where, you know, Sally Struthers would be there and she's over in Africa and she's got like a little kid with her. And it's like, this is my friend, Toby. Toby's here in Africa. Toby's starving. Um, please give us money. There are also things. There are also commercials that said there are a million kids starving in Africa, you know, Toby and everybody else. <laughs> um the commercial with Toby always got 10 times more money. Uh, and the reason for that is because it tapped into the humanity of an individual more than the, the effect of millions. And so every time I try, I try to tell my kids, I feel bad for you with social media because your friends on Instagram, you'll have 500 friends wish you happy birthday uh, on Instagram. And you wonder why it wasn't 550. Whereas Uh, mm -hmm. I would get three cards on my birthday in 19, in 1990. uh, Mm. And I never wondered where the extra card was. I was just happy Mm -hmm. three people reached out and, and paid, you know, the, whatever it was back then, 25 cents for the stamp uh, Mm -hmm. to send me the card. 
So people have been yeah. really desensitized. Um, their humanity has been shrunken. And so now as nonprofits, we are existing in the single greatest time or the, well, the single most difficult time to raise money, but also in the single greatest time technologically to transfer wealth to the nonprofit. We just have to figure out ways to tap into humanity. And that's what great nonprofits have to do now. They have to reignite that fire and that passion in people about humanity and about helping their fellow man. Those nonprofits that are not able to do this and that kind of fall asleep at the switch and just kind of get caught up in the malaise of spamming people, basic emails, basic social media, they're going to be left in the dust. So it's up it's up to really effective nonprofits to take a step back, you know, basic Simon Sinek stuff, start with why, uh, and then go to who, who are we serving, and make sure that the stories of those people are being told in such a way that it reignites the fire of humanity in the in the folks that we're reaching out to. That's the real challenge, but it's also the real opportunity. Um, and that's what I hope that, you know, anyone listening to this podcast and anyone um, who works with you know great professionals like Teresa Huff um, are thinking about uh, in order to really ensure the the longevity and the success of their nonprofit. Mm -hmm. It really is both. It's a challenge and an opportunity. And if we can look at it both ways and address both, then that's when we can start coming up with solutions. And what I've seen is that along the way, nonprofits become so close to their work and so close to their mission that they forget how to convey it or they don't know how to truly tell that story to someone on the outside looking in that's never heard of it before. They are so, you can't read the label from inside the bottle. And so they really struggle to convey that, like you're saying, of the compelling story, the humanity piece of it because they're in the trenches of it every single day. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it, it's, it's so true. And, you know, part of what makes the human race continue is a mind that seeks comfort, right? We, we, there's a reason that not everybody in the world jumps up at five o'clock in the morning and goes to the gym <laughs> because <laughs> it's not, it's not comfortable. Well, with the exception of Teresa and her husband, like, he gets up at like three. Not me. He can go. So yeah, he, not he, me. He gets up at three. <laughs> but but the, the rest of the rest of us mere mortals, uh, not named Ryan Huff, um, we, right. we 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 clutch onto the blanket like it's a life preserver, and we're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, uh, and so it becomes this this part of our brains that seeks comfort, um, and once we are doing something a certain way, and there's probably you know, no better example of this than nonprofits that, you know, kind of go by the, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it type of mindset. It becomes very simple to continue to reach out to volunteers in the same way, to reach out to that, you know, good old donor that has given you the $100,000 every year and and give them the head table at whatever fundraiser you're having. It, it Once that becomes comfortable, it's really hard to shake out of that because our, our minds make us seek out that comfort. It's only when something happens like COVID 
or when something happens like losing that major donor, that we realize that 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 the malaise that we've been living in is unbelievably detrimental, not just to the health and well-being of all the employees of the nonprofit, but there are so many other constituents of the nonprofit that could have been helped if we were just a little bit more creative, a little bit more innovative, if we just networked a little bit more, used a little bit more technology, you know, strove to have a little bit more leadership, um, you know, all those different things. When things are really good, that's when you double down and make things uncomfortable <laughs> to, to ensure that you are you are growing as an organization. And oftentimes, you know, we as nonprofits, we have our annual, you know, strategic planning. Um, you know, we dust off the strategic planner and, and wheel them <laughs> out uh, just so we have this cool notebook that we can show people at the end of the year. Um, mm-hmm. But we, we need to start thinking of nonprofits the same way that corporations think of their work. And we also need to start thinking of nonprofits the same way, you know, historically, Asian companies have thought, you know, there was always the thing that we hear about in business school, that the difference between American companies and Asian companies is American companies are concerned about four quarters. Asian companies are are concerned about four generations. And so everything is set up and everything is thought through of what my grandkids, grandkids, grandkids will, will deal with with this organization. And that builds greater bonds, that builds greater relationships. All those different things that we talk about being so important in business, we can't think of them as a four quarters game. We have to think of it as a four generations game. And what do we need to do to ensure the the health and viability of our nonprofit going that far into the future? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that shifts the whole perspective and the decision-making filters when we do that, when we have that bigger visionary perspective. And I love that comparison with the generations compared to the short-sighted quarters, because that really does make you think differently. If you think about your kids and even just, okay, what am I going to do with them this summer versus how am I going to help them for the next 10 years to set them up for college or whatever resources or piano lessons, whatever they need, thinking bigger long-term, it's a whole different decision-making set. And then when you shift that to generations, that's a different perspective entirely. And if nonprofits could adopt that, they could really start some powerful movements. Absolutely. Because, I mean, if we think about our role as nonprofits, our our role as nonprofits is to put ourselves out of a job, right? So if I'm the American Cancer Society, I want there to be no cancer, you know? Mm-hmm. And so in in our own way, whether that's motivational, aspirational, like how how does the American Cancer Society feel at the end of every year when cancer still exists? Should they feel pissed off? <laughs> like, like mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. if if you, if you really feel that way, then you're going to figure a way to kind of 10x your impact. Mm-hmm. And I think if you don't feel that way at the end of the year, you know, probably every you know, to be honest with you, Teresa, probably every single uh, nonprofit should start their annual meeting with, you know, hi, this is X nonprofit, X still exists, and I'm really pissed off. <laughs> so I can, so mm-hmm. I can, so I can show you these numbers, but clearly we need to 10 X our impact here. You know, if I'm, mm-hmm. if I'm, if I'm code purple, it's like, you know what? We were able to provide coats 
for 100,000 people who are freezing outside. But that's not the that's not the issue. The issue is there's still 100,000 people who are freezing outside. Mm-hmm. So, let, so let's get that. And that's the problem. <laughs> so the coats weren't the problem. The, the 100,000 mm-hmm. people were the problem. So it's really identifying the why and having nonprofits double down on that and ask themselves, why is this still an issue? And clearly there's something more we can be doing, not necessarily telling anyone to work more hours at the office. But saying, how do we better leverage our network? How do we better leverage technology? How do we better leverage our leadership skills? How do we better leverage our entrepreneurial um, capabilities? Because this is still existing. I am not out of a job yet. I I would love that. I would love if at every annual meeting, the CEO came up and said, I'm not out of a job yet. There's a problem. Mm -hmm. We're doing something wrong here. We're doing doing something wrong. And and yeah, so get them fired up. Yeah, that I mean, that's 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 it. Like the, as soon as someone said that to me, I mean, like take my, take my money right now if you if you said mm-hmm. if you said that because uh, yeah. I think brilliant. And um, well, obviously I'm biased because I just said it, but <laughs> but, <laughs> right, but it's like it, okay, challenge accepted. Let's do this so well we can get him out right, of here. Get me out. Get me out of here. Right. Get me yeah. to retirement quickly. <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I that's a that- bold statement. And who is saying that really? Nobody says that. But imagine if you walked into a board meeting and said that. It would get their attention. Oh, 100%. 100%. Uh and so that's um that's where we have to get people. Um that's where we have to get leadership to to saying those type of things and wondering why why am I still here? And 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 working with local, regional, national, international affiliates to really double down on the efforts. And once again, it's about leadership. It's about entrepreneurial principles. It's about networking. It's about technology. Let's take a look at what we're doing in all these areas. And just because we got 25% increase in funding or donations, that's not the point. The point is the problem is still here. So let's so let's focus on that. And if we do that, everything else gets a little bit more efficient and more effective. Right. And you just hit on something that I've been talking about a lot, too, is like people thinking we shouldn't invest anymore in overhead or that that's not a good use of resources. But if we don't invest in our overhead, our staff, our operations, having a better internal structure, we can't serve as well externally. So it's got to be both and it's got to be a mix of the two. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, oftentimes in in both corporate America and in the nonprofit world, we we hear about obviously the costs um, of, associated with things like labor, like overhead, and very rarely does people do people talk about it in terms of the investment. And uh-huh. I think if we heard more people talk about the investment in overhead, where someone had a safe, clean place to work in such a way that you know they come to work and, and they're thinking, "What well, man? I wish my house was <laughs> as clean as this place." <laughs> the investment right. of people with you know one of, with that the book that we're both working on right now, uh, Teresa Teamwork. Uh, where the mm-hmm. where the author Natalie talks about you know in any great operation 
twenty percent of the of your workforce should be just coming in, and we're and we're getting them involved. Sixty percent should be doing the job and, and leading to growth, and another twenty percent should be on their way out, either to a promotion or to a better job elsewhere. And it's mm-hmm. only when you have that thought process of, wow, I can't bear to, you know, most of us have that those a couple of employees who are like, man, if this person left, I would be really out out in the woods. Uh, so mm-hmm. I need them to stay instead of thinking to myself, I want to have a nonprofit organization where I train my lieutenants to be so good that for-profit companies are going to try to steal them from me because they're that mm-hmm. good. Their, their, their leadership is that good. Their, their understanding of technology is that good. They're this innovative. They're this creative. And listen, you, if you take the money and go to, you know, JP Morgan Chase, God bless you. We did a great job of preparing you to be successful, regardless of what the field of endeavor is. That's once we get to that point, you'll start to see real generational and cultural change in this country. But we have to think of nonprofits this way. If we're not going to double down our efforts and our impact for nonprofits who serve the least of us, there's something really wrong with how we're doing things. Preach. I'm clapping. (laughs) Exactly. And what you're saying from what I've seen in nonprofits and different dynamics, it's going to take people letting go of a lot of fear-based mentality. And that's a struggle, but I think that's important to address head on and to call it out for what it is, that these fears are not doing us any favors. The fear of, oh no, what if somebody leaves? What if that person doesn't want to stay and they left overnight and took all our stuff with them? Or what if, you know, all these different scenarios that might or might not happen? How about we shift that narrative into one of let's design this so that you can advance through the organization, so that you can grow your skill set, so that you can move on, like you said, whether it's to a higher position here or on to make an impact in the world somewhere else. Let's shift that and let go of the fears that are clouding our judgment and instead shift into that more problem-solving generational mindset. Absolutely. I think I think people um, underestimate the value of an employee understanding where they're going as much as where they are. And Mm -hmm. if you have the ability to, like you mentioned, kind of structure the organization where it's very clear that I've taken the time to onboard you to the to the organization. I've taken the time to understand, you know, are you a a deductive thinker or an inductive thinker? You know, where do you fit within the whole uh, disc framework of you know being, you know, dominant versus into versus interactive? And I've gotten to know you and I and I basically am putting you in a position where I say, hey, listen, you're doing a great job. I have a great idea of where you can go from here. Um, that's highly motivational. And and in most cases, leaders are either afraid to say that because they ha- they don't have a broad enough vision where they've thought about this or they don't want to get into what they believe is some level of a um you know, verbal contract that says you're going to go somewhere. 
And in most cases, the leader is just afraid of letting the person down. Like they're afraid of being motivational because then they're they're worried that their mouth is writing checks that that their actions can't cash. And that's why nonprofit leadership, I don't think it's that different from regular leadership, but I think that it's really just focused on the fact that for nonprofit leaders, there's so much at stake. And, yeah. and we want to reiterate that in nonprofit leadership training, that if anybody is going to be a great leader, it's you. You know, obviously in the the greatest leaders in the world have to be nonprofit leaders, right? Because the, the, the thing about, you know, the L word is as someone who's working as a manager, I can never call myself a leader. Like there's nothing more irritating than someone who goes in front of a group of people and says, like, so I'm the leader. Right. That never works. Like I'm I'm your manager. I'm your supervisor. I'm responsible for your work product. A leader is given that title by the people who work with him or her. They have to say that's the leader. It's kind of like that guy, like when you're growing up, who gave himself his own nickname. Like you can never take that person seriously. <laughs> right. It's like it's like, no, you're not Big Jim. Like you called yourself Big Jim. We will not be calling right. you Big Jim. Because you're like five foot two, like you're not Big Jim. Um, so any 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 nickname worth its salt is given by somebody else, and that's the same way with leadership. You can't call yourself leader. You're not allowed to do that. You someone else has to call you the leader, and oftentimes that person is not the person who's the supervisor. It's it's someone it's someone else in the organization who everyone else would like walk through walk through hell with gasoline drawers on because. Mm-hmm. They believe so much in what that person says. They have integrity. They they're resolute. They they know what they're doing. They're they're educated. They're polished. They speak well. So if anyone is going to have those qualities, the nonprofit leader who has to manage not only an issue, but they have to manage employees. They have to manage constituents. They have to manage volunteers. That type of person should have the most comprehensive leadership training in the world because mm-hmm. it's unbelievably difficult and the stakes are unbelievably high. So yes. that's kind of part of, you know, the work that we do is to put those people in the best possible position for the world's most important job. Right. And giving them the confidence and tools to do that and to do it well. And a lot of times it's the people who are quietly serving that maybe you wouldn't notice, but they're the ones that you know you could go to or count on, or you've got a problem, they can help you figure it out. So sometimes it's surprising. It's not always the manager that you sit, you know, like you said, the one that claims to be the leader. Sometimes that's not. It's the other ones that maybe you don't notice or don't realize that actually have a big influence. And once we recognize that and what a difference we have the potential to make, then that's where you add in a dose of this excellence and the training. And like you said, the world-class resources, that is when that could be the catalyst to start actually fulfilling some of these missions. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't say it better myself. And I mean, I think that's why... You know, first and foremost, everyone, everyone on the podcast needs to go to uh, to YouTube and look up Teresa Huff and her her TEDx uh, 
Wilmington's uh, Wilmington Salon talk. Um, Thank and she, you. And, and she and she does an unbelievable job of kind of encapsulating the 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 ROI uh, of even writing grants and and the and the experience of nonprofits. And I think that the business of America is business. And understanding that we live in that culture, we live in the industrial revolution culture that loves you know C corps and loves he loves L, like LLCs and loves businesses. The the nonprofit has overwhelmingly fallen by the wayside as as it pertains to really embracing um, and glorifying leadership. At least from the outside, those of us in the nonprofit world, we know which what nonprofits do. We know how great nonprofit leaders are. But once again, if we can really help nonprofit leaders have these skill sets, practice these skill sets, um, and get really, really good at modeling these skill sets for everyone in the organization, all the way from the constituents that you serve um, to the people who are right underneath you in the org chart, then thousands and millions of people's lives are saved and you can't you can't quantify that result and i think that's the reason why a lot of people don't spend this time with nonprofits because you can't quantify the work you know in a lot of cases but just because something is priceless that doesn't mean it doesn't have value (laughs) it's priceless it's priceless because the value is so astronomical it it boggles the mind so that Mm -hmm. person that's the leader that leads us to the cure for cancer that's priceless you can't quantify it and Mm -hmm. usually in america if you can't quantify it you are scared by it and Mm -hmm. so we we want to you know the work that i do the work that Teresa does we want to focus on priceless and that really is helping nonprofit leaders get to where they need to go to put themselves out of a job well said. <laughs> Very well said. I completely agree. And I think it does take that, the conversations, the excellence, and really what we've talked about all along here is also emerging of resources. It's not like we have this business box and this nonprofit box and we keep them in completely separate closets. We need to pull them out and combine and merge the tools, the strategies, the excellence the technology, the other resources you mentioned, and get the best of the best because the nonprofit road is a hard road and it's a difficult one, even just the nature of the nonprofits. Like you mentioned the board that you're on with Safe Haven Healing. My goodness, just the nature of dealing with the therapy and some of the issues that they're addressing, that is draining and that is so difficult. And so... I mean, starting something like that is not an easy burden to take on, but imagine the impact if they could do that so well that they put themselves out of business because they solve that problem. That is what it's going to take. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I have to obviously have to thank you for your role in that and your, you know, your podcast, your work are are a major, uh, a major lever to making that happen. So much, much kudos to you for, for kind of helping to lead that charge. No, thank you. It's been an honor to be involved and to see it 
take off and come together. I'm really excited about your vision for it and the direction that you guys are going. I think you have so many amazing resources and it, you're going to do it well. You're going to do it with excellence, like we've been talking about. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, as we wrap up, is there a particular resource that has been meaningful to you in your journey? Hmm. That's a that's a great question. I really wish you prepped me for these questions beforehand. Um, <laughs> I probably did. I think Ken <laughs> sent you something. Hmm. Oh, no, no. Forget, forget <laughs> I just said that. Uh, so, yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think that whether we're talking about for-profits, non-profits, um, academia, um, all those different things together, um, I think at the end of the day, it really all comes down to, for me, um, basic book, uh, how to win friends and influence people. <laughs> and I think, you know, so many great decisions have been made based on that book. I would say anybody in any space needs to read the book because it really kind of is a, a lesson in how to kind of tap into humanity uh, and tap into your fellow man and to present yourself in a good way, uh, unless you unless you present yourself in a good way, then, then a lot of people won't take you seriously or they won't, uh, they won't listen to you. So I always like that one. Um, the best resource for me from any sort of nonprofit experience, uh, and, and I apologize, I live in the city, so you can probably hear the desired moment is really just talking to, is really just kind of talking to other people. I think that people's stories who nonprofits affect are, are the most important resource. You know, you, you know, when, you know, when volunteering for a group uh, that that helps the homeless to talk to people about their lives and realize that even though we have titles on us, like someone with a home, someone who's homeless, you know, someone who's black, someone who's white. So oftentimes we hear we hear these titles and it automatically not just makes you think of the physical description of that person, but why they're there and how they're there. Um, and I remember some um, some work I was doing with the homeless population and getting a chance to talk to people. And I was blown away by stories of everything from I'm out here because I choose to be to kind of steal my resolve about something to, um, you know, I was in an abusive relationship and I needed to leave um, just because I was I feared for my life um, to. I, you know, I was a millionaire and lost it all. And now I'm, I, I'm, I am hopeful to kind of rebuild. And then to, you know, someone who has an addiction, uh, the, the type of people that are, that are out there are, it's varied and it's, it's not one story. And usually that one story of being homeless, for example, in the, the media usually promotes it as just one story, either lazy, addict, what have you. Um, so I think the best resource in any sort of nonprofit situation is reaching out to the folks who are the constituents who those nonprofits serve, and they will probably tell you more um, and steal your resolve more than any book or any uh, magazine or any television show on Netflix that uh, that you can listen to or watch. Um, so I would uh, I would encourage anyone who supports a nonprofit who writes the check um, to actually go out and meet the people um, who that check supports 
and probably nine times out of ten you'll you'll write a bigger check <laughs> so i think you know anyone who is a person that a nonprofit supports then uh then i think that's probably the absolute best person and best source to understand why we do what we do and and where those dollars go mm-hmm. that's powerful and hearing their stories then that goes back to putting that face of humanity back on it instead of something distant or lumping into categories. It brings it back to the humanity piece and that connection that you were talking about earlier. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this has been brilliant and amazing talking to you as I knew it would. So thank you for your time and sharing your wisdom. And I have a feeling we will be doing more of these soon as we develop more resources and different ideas down the road to support nonprofits and to keep this movement going. Absolutely. I look forward to it. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Appreciate you. right. What do you think of this episode? I don't know about you, but I was taking notes and writing down many quotable quotes that always come from every conversation I have with Dr. Dan. I hope you enjoyed it and found some good takeaways. I would love to hear your thoughts on this interview, so please shoot me a message. And like I said, if you have questions about our upcoming Leadership Academy that Dr. Dan and I are collaborating on, please reach out, let me know, and I will make sure to keep you informed and you'll be the first to know when we are ready to start releasing more information about that. That'll be coming up this spring. Please watch and share my TEDx talk, The Real ROI of Grant Writing, to help your board, your leadership, and your team understand how we can all work together to make a much bigger impact on our missions. All right, friends, make sure you take action within the next few days. Take action this week on something that you learned here today, and then shoot me a message and tell me what you did. I would love to hear the impact you're making in the world. All right, friends, have a great week and go change your world.